Hey, have you heard this one? Sticks and stones will break my bones. How does it go? Yeah, that's not true, is it? Yeah, words do hurt, sometimes even more than physical abusiveness. Uh, Think of the words, for instance, you have heard in the course of living life here on planet Earth that to this day still pain you. Think of the names. Think of some of the names you've been called over time uh, that still affect you in a, in a hurtful kind of a way. What if God named you something? What if God himself affixed a label to you? What if God himself, for instance, said, you are my little child? Think about what a difference that would make It wouldn't make all the pain go away, but it would sure diminish the intensity thereof. The words, the names you've heard from even significant people up until that point would not loom nearly as large if Almighty God made this pronouncement upon you, you are my little child. Well, I want to tell you that's not wishful thinking, that's a reality for those who accept Jesus as Savior. Uh, At the outset of the message tonight, I want you to think about that if you haven't yet. The invitation to accept Christ as personal Savior is yours right now. And if you accepted Jesus as your personal Savior, then what immediately happens is that his Father becomes your Father. And that's why he instructed wants his followers to pray this way, our Father. It's a radical two words. The Lord Jesus invites us into the same relationship and intimacy he has with his Father. And so if you accept Jesus as Savior tonight, there are many, many benefits. One is adoption into the family of God. and We can establish a personal relationship with his Father, the likes of which He has, and when that happens, Father God regards you as his little child. That makes all the difference in the world. That very phrase is one one the Lord used of followers of his on an event that we've been talking about some 2,000 years ago. It's popularly known as the Last Supper. It was a Passover dinner. And the Lord gathered with his intimate followers in a special place. We referred to it as the upper room. And there he celebrated with them the traditional Passover, but he attached entirely new meaning to it. For soon, really in just a few hours from that dinner, he would be the ultimate Passover lamb who offered his life as a substitutionary atonement for their sin. During that time, Judas was present, and Almighty God, the Lord Jesus, gave him so graciously manifold opportunities to repent, and each one was refused by Judas. And then suddenly, the text we read some time ago said he went out into the night, kind of a metaphor of his spiritual location. He went out into the darkness, and there he was consumed by the inclinations of the prince of darkness, Satan took hold of him, and Judas became a betrayer. 
at the, under the influence of the prince of darkness, he became a betrayer of Jesus, the Lord of light and life. And then after Judas left the Passover Seder, they're still gathered around the table. We read this in John chapter 13, verse 33. That's where we'll pick up tonight, just a few verses. John 13, verse 33, we read, the Lord said, little children. So you see, that's the phrase I opened with. I didn't make it up. That's how he referred to the, not 12, that's how he referred to the 11 remaining disciples of his. In fact, he waited to use that term, that phrase, until Judas the betrayer was no longer there. He couldn't refer, sadly, tragically, he couldn't refer to Judas as his little child because Judas refused his gracious offer of forgiveness and adoption and relationship. Don't be like Judas. Don't refuse the unbelievable invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ to be right with him and with his father. When Judas left, therefore, the Lord pronounced upon the remaining disciples, he said, little children. He called his disciples little children. And folks, this is a little unusual because these disciples were grown men, not little children. They were fishermen. They smelled like it. They perspired. They were gruff. They grew beards. And yet from the point of view of the Lord, those who are his followers are like unto little children, regardless of their size, facial hair, and body odor. The Lord Jesus Christ so loves those who are his. They are, regardless of their size and age, regardless of their race and gender, they are considered to be his beloved little children. It was his kindness and love that caused him to refer to these gruff fishermen that way. They are his little children, and I'm emphasizing this because so too are you and I if we've accepted the Lord Jesus as personal Savior. And so we read in John chapter 13, verse 33, little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, I, I mentioned this before, I'm not trying to get my people off the hook, but in the interest of biblical accuracy, I would like you to know that's not a reference to Jewish people, that's a reference to the Jewish religious leaders. In fact, the term is better translated Judeans. This is a reference to the unsaved, hard-hearted Jewish religious leaders whose religious center was in Jerusalem in the precinct or province of Judea. And so the Lord is saying to the 11 gathered at the Passover table now, he is saying, I'm with you a little while longer, little children. You'll seek me. And as I said to the Jews, he's saying something to his disciples that's somewhat similar to what he previously said to the Jews. Now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. And he did say that in John chapter 7, verse 34. He said this to the unsaved Jewish religious leaders. He said, you will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. You see, they were, not, they were not seeking him when he was there, literally, physically in their presence. And when they had every opportunity to embrace him by faith, they refused it. 
but they will in the future, tragically, in desperation, seek him. That's what's implied in this verse. But then it will be too late. Look, I don't want to ruin anybody's evening, but don't take the Lord's gracious invitation to be redeemed, saved, forgiven, for granted, because there will come a day when you won't be able to. It'll be too late. And so the Lord says this to them. In that day of desperation, when you sadly, too late, recognize who I am, and when you realize the ramifications of your refusal of my offer, well, then it'll be too late. And so, folks, those who hate being with Christ here on earth will not be with him in heaven. And I'll tell you why that's the case. It would not be heaven for them to be with the Messiah they hate and have rejected here. So Almighty God is imposing nothing on anyone against their will. He's simply reading our hearts. He knows what we will and are intent on. And if we're intent on refusing Jesus as Savior, well, then he will allow that to happen and it carries over into heaven. He won't force himself upon us. He could, but that's not the way he operates. And so I have good news and bad news I'd like to offer to you. First, the good news, it's this. Sinners will not be able to follow you, a Christian, into heaven. Isn't that good news? Maybe. Here's the bad news. Sinners will not be able to follow you into heaven. You see, it's both good news and good news. No sin, no sinners in heaven, but that means unsaved sinners are excluded from it. Which leads me to this. This is our primary responsibility and privilege in the time remaining for us now. It's to share the good news with sinners that they, like we, may be saved by the blood of the Lamb. That's our primary vocation and occupation. If you're looking for something, some purpose in life, if you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus, you are his ambassador, so am I. And to assist a little bit, just as this wonderful couple have been assisted in sharing their faith in one of our classes, I've come up with just a few words, 40 to be exact, that you could offer to someone to get conversation going. You could say to that person, you could say, hey, uh, let me tell you about the greatest thing that ever happened to me. It was when I realized that God was willing to forgive all my sins through the death of his son Jesus on the cross in my place. I was feeling bad that I hadn't shared these words or a message like it in quite some time. And then I got an opportunity, the other, well, I didn't get. There were opportunities all over the place, but I opened my eyes to an opportunity and I had a wonderful conversation with somebody. And it's so exhilarating to talk about the Lord. It's fun to talk about the Astros, but it's exhilarating to tell someone about the Lord whom you love and who has redeemed you and in whose eyes you're like a little child. Let me encourage you, therefore, while there's time, do your part. Share the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. And maybe in heaven one day, someone will tap you on the shoulder. If they could tap and if you have a shoulder, I don't know exactly what heaven will be like. Let's assume that's the case. And they'll say, thank you, because you took the time to share with me. I'm here now forever 
in eternity with our Lord and Savior. So then the Lord made a statement to his disciples that is similar, he says, to the one he previously made to unsaved Jewish religious leaders. He said, you'll seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you where I'm going, you cannot come. Though the statements are similar, in fact, almost identical, the application is eons apart. It's different. For the disciples, the separation the Lord is talking about is temporary. But for the unsaved Jewish religious leaders, the separation is absolutely permanent. So what then does the Lord mean when he tells his disciples, where I am going, you cannot come? Well, folks, he was going on a journey, the Lord was, only he could go on. He was going down a road, only he could travel, and it was a road he must travel alone. Nobody could accompany him. Folks, he is going to the cross. Soon after that last supper, that Passover Seder, this would be his destiny. Nobody could go alongside him there to the cross. He was going there to die. And though death is common to us, we know that. We feel its ramifications in our daily experience. Still, no one's death is like his. His would be unique because his death would be to provide forgiveness for the sins of others. Nobody has died in order to do that. Only he could, only he would die for the sake of others as he did. Only he was qualified to do so. And therefore, nobody could go this way, the way of the cross with him. Only he could do it. Nobody could come alongside and accompany him. It was a solitary journey. And therefore, he tells his disciples, where I am going, you cannot come. So then here is what he, in essence, tells them. He says, I'm leaving you. Uh, my visible, physical presence with you will soon come to an end. I will be taken from you. What then will you have? And I think he now tells them, well, you will have each other. Therefore, he says to them in the next verse, verse 34, I bet this is familiar to you. <clears throat> he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. In essence, he's saying, I will be going from you, but you will still have each other to love. That's essentially what he's saying. And he is expressing this mandate to love as if it is a new commandment, but I don't exactly get it because the commandment to love doesn't seem so new. For instance, in the Old Testament scriptures, here's one place where we've read about this. Leviticus 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So there is the commandment to love. What is new about this so-called new commandment in John 13, verse 34? I would like to suggest three things that make this brand new. Here's the first. What's new about it is the pattern of love. In the Old Testament, the pattern of love, as we just read in Leviticus 19.18, was this, love your neighbor as yourself. But the new pattern is not love your neighbor as yourself. It is love one another, here's a tough one, as I have loved you. Can you see how the standard of love has been elevated enormously? So now we are commanded to look to how Jesus loved his little children, and we are to love his little children, fellow believers, just as he has loved. 
Well, how did he love? He loved sacrificially, I know that. He loved people who don't deserve to be loved, that's us. And he loved his little children unendingly. He had no exit strategy, no plan B. When he entered into covenant with us by faith, by our faith, He's in it throughout eternity. This is, how he, this is how he loved. And so the old pattern of love was to love one's neighbor as oneself, but the new pattern is to love fellow believers just as Christ has loved us. So the first new thing about this new commandment has to do with the pattern of love. The second has to do with the power to love. Folks, how in the world can we love one another right here the way the Lord Jesus has loved us? That's quite a tall order. It's no easy thing, especially since other believers can be irritating, can't you and me? And we can be frustrating to one another. And we can really be at times ornery, moody, and undeserving, let's face it. So I want to know how in the world do we do what the Lord has not suggested, he has commanded we do. In fact, the group to whom the Lord gave this commandment originally, I don't think they had smooth sailing relationally. For instance, James and John one time had the audacity to ask the Lord for him to grant them the right to sit at his right and left hand. <laughs> that meant the seats of honor. What do you think the others in the group were thinking as James and John were vying for the key positions in the Lord's presence? Peter, he was in that group. How would you get along with Peter? Peter was irritatingly outspoken. Peter was never silent. He never was reflected. He never kept his mouth shut and some of us are like that here. Matthew, he was a tax collector. Do you know what that meant to his fellow Jews? It meant, in essence, that he's a traitor because he was collecting revenue for the Roman oppressors. They didn't like his vocation. Thomas, Thomas was a, he was kind of a loner, Thomas was. He was a, uh, he was a pessimist of sorts. He was a doubter. And so their personalities were different, and I'm sure they clashed, and yet the Lord gave this mandate to them to love one another. That's what he said. But how could they, how could we today comply with that, what seems like an impossible command to obey? Well, I don't think it's possible for a person to love the way Jesus has loved until that person has been loved by Jesus. Something happens when you have that experience. When you accept the love of Jesus, he, sends, he sends his very presence into our life. We call that one the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit who enables us to do this. In fact, one of the evidences or byproducts or fruits of his presence in our life, you know this, is love. That's the only way to love as Jesus loved. It's first to experience the love of Christ. And so love for one another, if I'm interpreting the Lord's words correctly, love for one another is to be the grand distinguishing mark 
of Christ's disciples. Folks, our, what we believe is quite important. Our theology is very, very important, but the folks out there who don't yet know the Lord, um, <laughs> what they see from us is not our theology or doctrine or anything like that. What they see from us is how we treat one another as fellow believers. And so the world out there is not all that concerned about our spiritual gifts, about miracles in our presence, about all the other things, sometimes theological th things we divide over. The visible manifestation of our faith in Christ is our love for one another. There was a song written years ago in the 60s, and they'll know we are Christians by our love, not by our doctrine, not by our theology, not by the labels we take on or refuse, theological labels, and they'll know we are Christians by our love. And I wonder, is this how the world knows us? I did some study on what non-believers think of us. It was discouraging, therefore I will not share it with you. We don't have a good impression out there in the eyes of many. Now, part of it is our message, which is unpalatable, but must not be compromised, I know that. But oftentimes, it's that they don't see how we who claim a common connection to the Lord Jesus have much in common because we divide over things we should not be divided over. I don't think the church I'm one of them. I don't think we've done so well historically in helping non-believers to know we are Christians by our love. And perhaps this accounts for why the gospel doesn't get the hearing we really would like for, for it to get. You see, by our infighting and by splits, churches split. You know that? These things happen. By our dividing or division over non-essentials, we may have we may have forfeited opportunities to win a hearing for the gospel. If this life-changing message can't change us in terms of our own relationships, why should the world out there be attracted to it? And so I wonder if our lack of demonstrated love for one another may have seriously hindered the effectiveness of our evangelism. You want to hear a bad thing? Maybe some of you here have participated. I don't mean to hurt your feelings, but it's just a bad thing. To use social media to criticize other Christians. Do you think you're the only one reading that? Do you know what that makes us look like? It's not good. I think the biblical approach, if you have ought against a brother or a sister, is to go to that one. You hear a message you don't like, a song is distasteful to you. Whatever the deal is, you feel unfairly treated in the church you're attending. These are valid things but they're not validly expressed on Facebook. And yet you read certain things there. It's just, do you mind me calling you a coward if that's what you do? Yeah, well, you are and I would be too. The Bible says, if there's a problem with a brother or sister, leave your sacrifice at the altar and go be made right. It doesn't say, go to Twitter says, work it out. See, that kind of thing robs us of opportunities to demonstrate the legitimacy of the gospel because they don't see any real life change relationally with us. And so non-believers will not know that we are Christ's by our doctrine. 
nor by our beliefs, but they will know, if I'm reading this text correctly, they will know that we are Christians by our love for fellow believers. And so in this regard, Francis Schaeffer, have you ever heard of him? He's, he's with the Lord. He's a Christian philosopher. Francis Schaeffer made this statement. Listen, we must never forget that the final apologetic which Jesus gives is the observable love of true Christians for true Christians. There is no greater defense, there is no greater demonstration of our Christian faith than our love for other Christians. That's an apologetic. An apologetic is a defense of the faith. The greatest defense and demonstration of the faith is that we love one another, and the world sees it. If we lack this, I think we lose a grand opportunity to win a hearing for our faith. But why is it, I was asking myself this question, why is it that a show of love between Christians is so powerful a testimony to the world? And I thought about this. Jesus took, then and now, um, a very diverse group of people to form into a cohesive, unified family. He took, he, took, he took black people and he took white people. He took uh, men and then he took women. He took older people and he took younger people. He, uh, he took rich people and, then, and he took poor people. He took American people and he took non-American people. He took a very different and diverse uh, collective assemblage of people and he, and he brought us together under the umbrella of the cross. And so those gathered around the cross are varied and diverse and different and yet they've been formed by faith in Christ into a new family in Christ. So the church has its centeredness on the cross which is a demonstration of the love of Almighty God. And we're different. Uh, black people have an affinity for other black people. And white people have an affinity for other white people. This is the way it is. Jewish people have an affinity for Jewish people. And Gentile people have an affinity for Gentile people. Older people feel more comfortable with other older people. And younger people like to hang out together. That's the way it is. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. In fact, it's so normal, it gets no one's attention out there. But what if you take representatives from each of those very diverse groups and put them into one new family that love each other? Then the world takes note, because that's not natural. The government tries to legislate that sort of thing. And I'm happy for it because laws ought to reflect morality. I'm in favor of anti-discriminatory laws and all. The, don't misunderstand it. But nothing, no laws, no force on earth has ever accomplished what the Lord Jesus has accomplished. He has brought together people who don't have a natural affinity for one another, don't eat the same food, speak the same language, wear the same clothes, have the same sense of humor, and all the rest. Now the world is obligated to take note of this. The United Nations are not united. 
No force on earth can get us together, but the Lord Jesus can. And when we look like that, the world says, what in the world has brought you together? And we say, it's not a what, it's a hymn. And let us tell you about the hymn. He is the tie that binds. <laughs> it's not these other superficial considerations. The other day we had a marvelous event, Hispanidad, a celebration of Hispanic culture. It was Sunday night in our hall. 18 different uh, countries were represented, and there was food from all of these countries. You can go from table to table. I had something from Colombia, something from Uruguay, something from Mexico. It was marvelous. Well, I was, uh, I'm not a Spanish speaker, and I think I was noticeable uh, <laughs> as I, I walked in, and uh, I felt at, at home. These were my people. Skin, shades of skin, slightly different. Foods, definitely different. I don't think there was a kosher item in the whole house. Uh, music, by the way, was unbelievable. There was a group from Chile, a family. I've never heard, there was a man who played a guitar. I've never heard a guitar played like that in my life. They sang songs from different countries, from Peru and Chile and all different places. There were people dressed up in costumes from their native lands. There were dances. Oops, I didn't mean dances, Pastor. I meant, I meant there was some creative movement. That's what I meant to, to say. And uh, it was noticeable to my brothers and sisters who speak Spanish that, uh, that I, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know how to, do you put, is, do you put rice with this chicken? Do you, how do you, what do you do? And I was so uh, cared for, so embraced, so part of it all. First of all, it made me think, I want to return the favor. When I'm in a group where I'm the majority of whites or something like that, I want to go out of my way to make sure that minority members don't feel like the odd man or odd woman out. I want to approach that person and be of help. And it was a marvelous thing. And it was, a, it was language ties that brought people together and all the rest, which is absolutely acceptable. Really, really wonderful. But the real tie for 18 people groups and the Jewish guy from New York, the real tie was Jesus Christ. And the world cannot explain that. The world cannot explain that. One time I was with, in Israel and I was invited to the home of an Arab believer friend of mine. This was an honor, and I went and was served unbelievable Arabic food, really good stuff. And uh, neighbors were invited in. This Arab friend of mine was a believer, the neighbors not yet, mostly from a Muslim background, wonderful people. And I could see when they walked in and saw me who my friend introduced me as a Jewish guy from Texas. And I thought, man, would you just let me introduce myself my way? Why'd you have to blow my cover? 
They were so perplexed. How could it be that a Jewish guy from Texas is invited into the home of an Arab family and they are friends? I officiated at a wedding of a family in our church, the daughter, beautiful gal. They're from Egypt. They're Arab peoples, and I'm not, and we have become close friends, and they bestowed upon me the honor of officiating at this wedding, and many of their relatives came from Egypt, and we got the same reaction. They were thinking, what is that Jewish guy doing? You know, officiating at the, but you see, they can't explain it. They could explain it if I was an Egyptian guy, an Egyptian wedding, They could explain it, but don't you see what the Lord is getting at? But if you, who have no natural ties, focus on your supernatural tie and manifest that to the world, they cannot explain it. And then they say, "Hmm, that's a sign of those people really being followers of Christ. And so Followers of Christ are not identified by any of these other things. They're identified by love, love received by him, love shown to one another. And so the scriptures say, and by this the world will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By the way, the world doesn't get saved when they watch us loving each other. I didn't say that. The only thing that could save someone is to hear the gospel and believe in it. However, when they see us, different though we are, when they see us loving one another, we win a hearing for the gospel. And they attribute that unity to our affiliation with the Lord Jesus Christ because no other agency or force on earth, as I mentioned, had ever succeeded in doing it. We've had many people in our church family of late suffer Uh, the loss of loved ones or serious maladies befalling loved ones from cancer to liver disease to all manner of things. And each of those needy families reports, I'm telling you the truth here, I don't know what I would do without Sagemont Church. The cards, the calls, the visits. And they're coming from such diverse people And each is showing love and concern to needy ones. And when the world sees this, when they see us, have you heard of this stuff? When one of our people is in a hospital, of course we have the greatest pastoral care ministry led by Brother Rex and his teams, but so many church members visit a fellow church member in the hospital. Do you know the nursing staff, medical staff, others wonder, What is going on? How do you know so many people? Who are they? Is this your family? Yes, of sorts. We're the family of God. Folks, that wins a hearing for the gospel. The world cannot demonstrate that. We're segregated. We're divided. That's why any hint of segregation in the church of Jesus Christ is a cardinal sin. Then we rob the Lord of glory, he who has brought us together. I want to say this in closing. Um, I think one of the distinctives of Sagemont Church is the love its members showed to one another over the years, and I attribute it to, to that man, our pastor. You know, things go from the top down. A church family takes on the character 
of its leader, of its patriarch, and our pastor um, will tolerate a lot, but not a lack of love between brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. And we get that message, don't we? And it shows many people have come here and have commented on that, the love that they have, have heard and received. We have a beautiful sanctuary and we have wonderful communicators and all the rest. But the relational distinctive, I think, that we're blessed to have here really goes a long way. So folks, let's keep going in the days ahead. I know we irritate one another from time to time. And I know um, our cultural differences sometimes get in the way. So we have to get over that, don't we? Because they will know we are Christians by our love. Do you know that song I mentioned earlier? And they'll know we are Christians by our love. Sing it with me. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love.